John Paul Gutschke. Uh, welcome to Power and Witness, our podcast. Uh, we had you on the show and uh, talking about film and your recent uh, work, um, The Promise. So just wanted to further the discussion. And um, and I know you're, a, you're 22 years old. You're going to begin your last year at Christendom and you're majoring in philosophy. And you studied a lot in your classes on Aristotle. And what did he have to say about uh, beauty? So Aristotle talks about the importance of imitation in art. So in his work, The Poetics, he talks a lot about how, you know, art really imitates life and everything in art, particularly stories, it's about portraying the human quest for happiness. It's a portrayal, it's an imitation of our human journey as we seek for longing and fulfill, as we long for fulfillment and seek that happiness and final resting place of our actions, what he would call the telos of our actions, the ultimate end of our actions. And then you have St. Thomas Aquinas come along and build upon what Aristotle said and he describes that beauty has three components, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. And the wholeness is the, the fittingness of um, the, the entirety of the work of art. So it has to be complete. The harmony is the parts that fit together. They have to all work together in unison well. And the radiance is the splendor, the beauty that comes out, that truth that comes out in a very powerful way in the work of art and that's what makes a work of art beautiful having those three elements of wholeness harmony and radiance and like wholeness doesn't mean like symmetry where you have this perfect symmetry because remember we've got this screensaver that it's a it's like a japanese maple like that would grow along a stream or something and it's very asymmetrical Right. But it's it's absolutely beautiful. Right. And I was trying to think what is the what is the wholeness there? How do you describe that wholeness? So the wholeness would be just the fact that it is complete and entire. It's not missing something that it needs in order to to feel like it, it reached its perfection. It just has everything that it needs in order to be beautiful. Like if you chopped it in half, probably would not be beautiful in the same way anymore. Yeah. But it's not that wholeness has to be like a certain type of order. It just has to be ordered according to the thing that it is. So if it's yeah. a beautiful willow tree, it has to have the parts of the willow tree to make it that willow tree and make it lovely according to its specific way of being. Yeah. Would it have to be symmetrical maybe along a different axis? Oftentimes we just think of like a vertical axis, but if you had maybe like a horizontal axis, does there does it have to be symmetry to it? Or? I mean, there has to be there has to be some amount of order and proportion so that whatever the work of art is, or whether it be something that humans make, or whether it be something in nature, there has to be a certain proportionality to it. But it really depends on the specific thing. Yeah, yeah. I was reading some about I was reading about beauty not that long ago, and and I remember. You could think like all things that God makes has a beauty to it, right? And and uh, so just being itself has beauty, but He also teaches, I think, that it's also like does the beauty serve? Like if you look at our inner organs, you know, they're not necessarily beautiful in the sense of something that you would look upon. That is that have it's fitting that you look upon a tree that has beauty. It's not fitting that you look upon my liver and say that it has like a beauty mm -hmm. to it. You could say, yeah, there's some beauty of of being an organ or whatever. But I thought that was a great distinction. You know, it's like, it, it's almost like, and I don't know if he says this, but it's almost like, who's going to see this? You think of like those deep fish that maybe have the luminosity feature to it. Or something, mm -hmm. And they look like these horrible monsters, you know, you know and and I, so I remember fishing one time in Florida with some friends and we were pulling up these redfish and it just struck me as so beautiful. It's like they were, 
like the tops of them just had this wonderful reddish pink and the white underbelly. Right. And I remember the first time I saw it when we pulled it up, I just it just blew me away. And um, but yet you go much deeper, it gets ugly down there. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so there's there's I guess there's a, a beauty to what's to things that are visible and right. There's a there's an ontological um, beauty to things, which means that they are beautiful insofar as they exist. They're beautiful insofar as they're there. They're in front of you. They're, they, they have being, um, right. as a philosopher would say. And since God creates all things, everything that he makes is good. And therefore, everything that he makes is beautiful because beautiful and good are two words to look at the same, the same truth, but different aspects of it. So good, true, and beautiful are all kind of synonymous. It's looking at the same thing, but different aspects of the same thing, almost like the facets of, uh, of a gem. Right. And when you, have, when you have something that's ontologically beautiful, it's beautiful because it's there. And then the, the aesthetic beauty, which is more what we're talking about in relation to art, that is where those three, those three facets of beauty, the wholeness, the harmony, and radiance, they all come into play because there's a bit more emphasis on the parts working together in harmony, the wholeness being there, the thing being complete in itself. It doesn't need anything added or taken away from it in order for it to be beautiful and pleasing and for it to have that that radiance, that ability to convey truth in a brilliant way that just kind of shines forth some goodness, some aspect of reality that makes us think. Yeah. And also, I mean, so the radiance or the claritas. Mm-hmm. That's the that, Latin for it. Latin. It's that it could be visual, right? Right. Like with bright colors. I think like Michelangelo supposedly used very bright colors, I think, mm-hmm. existing chapel. And right. I don't know if it's true that he, if he designed the uh, Swiss Guard uniforms or not, but that's certainly bright colored and everything. But, um, but yeah, you know, I was... I was walking up at the shrine, and it was a, it had this beautiful blue sky, you know, and like they had green grass around it and stuff, and white clouds, and and it just struck me as something so simple, commonplace, but so beautiful, you know, if we pause and look at it. But especially, it seemed like things get our attention that have like vivid, bright colors, you know. Like That's a, true. Yeah. St. Thomas talks about the brightness of color really kind of being an example of that claritas or splendor because it, it's just so immediately striking to the eye and like that's why we like objects that are shiny that are magnificent and have this this brilliance and reflectiveness and just a vibrancy to them it really allows us to see god in it it allows us to be to wonder at mm-hmm. nature and what nature has to offer as the creation of god the creator mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I, on my Instagram, I started following this Jewel Instagram account. And it was just, they would have like, they weren't placed in a setting, but they would just have like these jewels. They'd show every, I don't know, I guess they're selling them or something. But it just struck me as so beautiful. I remember one time I saw this ruby that wasn't in a setting, but, you know, when the sunlight shone on it, it just had like a depth, a richness to the color that was mesmerizing right you know it's like and you think of like well done stained glass you know the colors there are so beautiful and so how do we say like art imitates life is that is that the saying how does that go <laughs> yes so art is very much an imitation it's called it's called in in more philosophical terms mimesis mimesis is imitation and in art it's particularly typically imitation of human action in some way or another. So you see in music, you, you feel that sense of longing for the transcendent. If, for example, if you listen to Mozart's Ave Verum, you feel that sense of God is something greater that our hearts are stretching out to, to love and be united with. Um, in, in great films, you have a sense of our quest for happiness as you follow specific characters in a time and place and a setting and that in that specificity and you know you have this person at this time in this location 
when you follow those characters as they make choices and as as you see their journey unfold it's really telling us something universally true about human nature about our lives and about our common shared quest to be truly happy and fulfilled as human beings would thomas say that then that god makes beauty to draw ultimately he's beauty itself to yes. draw us to himself yes i believe so um he is he is ultimate beauty. He is the source of all beauty in, in creation, either through the natural world, the trees, the birds, the sky, the clouds, the water, the seas, or whether it be, um, and, uh, you know, man, the jewel of creation and the beauty of human beings, the smile, um, true love and friendship, the human person, you know, as the, as the most beautiful example of God's creation, but also in what we create, because we take what God has given us and we sub-create. And in so doing, we're giving sort of a gift back to God and using our rational capacity because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And when we create works of art, we're really doing something that's, that's in imitation of our creator. We're doing something in imitation of God saying, you know, you gave us this stuff to work with and now we can give it back to you as a gift using our ability to think and make sense out of it and put order and design into it and then when we hand it back to God as a gift, it's it's a really wonderful thing that that's so specifically human. Yeah, and I I think too. Yeah, Thomas. I think it was Thomas that said, like, the natural world and the beauty therein is is like God's first word to us. You know, right. It's a revelation of Himself. So He's trying to draw us to the Maker and the one who made this and create and sustains all this and i i think too that the beauty in the natural world especially speaks to us and nurtures us i think it i think like like walking outside in the woods or something just being a natural beauty nurtures us in a spe special way i mean i, I kind of i was always i grown up as a boy scout and hiker and loved the woods and all stuff but i know like during covid i just started taking more wood walks outside and it, a lot of it was just to kind of relax, you know, it was a stressful time with different stuff going on. And um, and I found it very calming and restorative. Yes. You know, more, I don't know. I, I guess some man-made art certainly is beautiful and everything, but it seemed like the natural world has a special part of place there to some degree. Oh, that's definitely very lovely because it's what God created specifically for us himself. So it's, it's not even something that we make and give back to God. It's something that God directly made. And it's really like his, his fingerprint, you know, in nature, we see God indirectly. And when we contemplate, when we're trying to know God, when we're trying to behold the beauty and the goodness that just the awesome wonder of our creator, when we're trying to think about that and reflect upon it, which is called contemplation, when we're trying to do that, to understand, to and to, to just behold the goodness and beauty of our Creator, we we do this initially through seeing Him through His effects. So when we see the tree that God created, it's an effect of God. God is the cause. He created the tree as an effect. And as we see that, you know, the order and splendor of the tree, we're like, wow, that's so wonderful. It points us back to the Creator of all things. And that's why, like you were saying, nature is such a wonderful and rich ability to put us back in touch with God as the creator and to, and to foster that relationship and ability to love and understand God ultimately. Yeah. And does Thomas, you mentioned the heart earlier. I don't know if y'all read much of Dietrich von Hildebrand, mm -hmm. but he yes. talks, oh, you have? A bit, yes. Yeah, he talks a lot about the heart and its importance and... But it, yeah, it seems like, I know, I think Thomas says something like it gives pleasure, like beauty gives pleasure when it is seen or when it's in the sense. Yes, that which seen pleases. Pleases, yeah. But yeah, there's something though too, like on a seemingly like on an even deeper level that we're moved by it. Right. It could be moved to tears. Right. You know, that it's like. What is going on there? What is that? Right. Uh, what is? Does Aristotle say anything about that? Or 
Thomas? Or? Yes, I be well, I believe Thomas, probably even more so than Aristotle, would have an understanding of, of the human heart in a way that, that's in conformity with the, the description the catechism will often draw upon, the biblical sense of the heart, which is the center of the person. It's, it's both emotion and reason fused together in, in a well-formed character, this movement of the innermost depths of a person's being at truth, at love, at, at this beauty that God provides and is the source and summit of. And it, the human heart is moved at, at, its, at its innermost depths and when encountering this type of beauty because it's what we're made for. We're ultimately made for, for love and communion. And when we see works, uh, when we see nature, when we see God's effects, we feel the love of our creator and it moves us more than anything else because we feel that connection with God, who's our ultimate longing. We ultimately long for God as our, as our final end and, and our ultimate satisfaction. Yeah, I, I read one writer, I don't know if he took this from Thomas, but he's, he talked about like the surprising aspect of it and that, that personal thing that you experience this like as a, as a gift from our creator. Like we, we come upon a, a rainbow or walking in the woods and you come across this waterfall and you feel like, or a sunset, he's like, this is, this is just for me. Right. You know, it's like this very kind of personal, like you do feel like, and people often, even secular people, you know, it kind of draws them to some experience of God or belief in God. I was listening to these uh, reporters. They were talking about the new telescope. It just slips my mind what the telescope's called. But it's like seeing almost to the edge of the universe. I mean, it's like 12 and a half billion light right. years. <laughs> and, and this reporter, you know, oftentimes are secular people, um, you know, she said she just wept when she saw these these uh, these images of you know these stellar images, whatever phenomenon, and and I I thought that was so striking. I think that's just something that's in our human nature, right? That we're moved so deeply. Definitely, because yeah. God God puts it in our hearts, in our souls. He He puts this this longing for Him. And nothing besides him can truly satisfy it, which is why when we, when we encounter this divine beauty through his effects, such as through nature, through friendship, we, we ultimately, it's, it's a reminder that we are made for God, we're made for heaven, and it's, it's overwhelming to think about just how wonderful that, that total communion and, and satiation in God's infinite love would be. Yeah. And you mentioned morality too because there's a beauty to a a, a moral act a good right. moral act that is also so amazing yeah you know even you know, even that on social media you know you might have a video of someone doing something for somebody else you know right and it could be powerful um did you all study that well yes <laughs> the beauty of moral acts <laughs> um saint thomas and I believe Aristotle as well, um, they talk about how what is most moving is human action. So seeing the goodness of actions is, is something that's very powerful to us because we realize that it's, it's a good that we are all called to. Right. And to see it in a heroic degree, especially like great sacrifices, it's, it's very moving because we know that that's true. We know no matter how much evil and sin we might fall into at the end of the day we have a conscience we have a sense of this morality and when we see it it's very powerful because we know that that is truly good that can't be stamped out we can't really become that warped that we can't recognize it or at least it's very hard to get to that point we always have that sense of of right and wrong so seeing moral action aristotle talks about how friends delight in seeing the good the good virtuous activity of their other friends so when one friend sees their their friend doing something good it's it's very powerful to them because they know that they are living a good human life and to see someone doing something that's good both for them and for you it's 
it's very powerful and, and really stirring. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, asking myself, like, what do I like? Eventually, we're talking about movies eventually here. <laughs> I thought it was good just to talk about some of the philosophy behind beauty and things that that make for a, a moving picture. You know, I, I'll say, I was telling somebody that the other day, you know what I want to, I want to see something that moves me. Mm-hmm. That That's really what I really want to see. I want right. to go to the theater or watch something that moves me, that somehow speaks to me. And, and I was thinking like with the, with a good moral act or something, oftentimes for me, it's like somebody that sacrifices something, you know, that love is involves sacrifice, it costs them something. Or two, like when people will maybe help another person lift them up. Like maybe a person who's got a certain strength right. will extend his hand to somebody and he doesn't have to. Right. You know? And maybe it does cost him something, maybe it just something that he notices and just decides to do something about it. And maybe he's got a lot of other stuff raging in his life that's uncontrolled. <laughs> but in this moment, he does something noble. Right. And that always gets me. I don't know if that's, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, it's, uh, do you identify with that? Or? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's, so one of the, in, in the film that I made, it definitely is one of the aspects that I wanted to portray is that um, that human reaching out to help his fellow man and, and show that that um, that love and thoughtfulness and particularly with the main character and his and his um, desire to help other people you know he's he's willing to help them write their papers even though he could get in trouble himself and even though that's not like the objectively um, academic right thing to do he's willing to take a risk because he cares about them and he wants to help them even though he knows that's putting himself at risk if he gets caught doing that and similarly with his friends who just see his goodness even though he's stuck in his own world and try to reach out to him it was important to me to convey that good good good-hearted people will try to reach out to others and to and to pull them out of out of their um isolation and pull them out of their narrow way of thinking so that they can live a better life and that's that's always a very powerful and and loving thing to do that we are called to do as as christians and as human beings you know what i find too it's like the characters it's like when they get selfish it kind of in one sense maybe it gets predictable maybe not necessarily so but there's something that gets small about our world when we start getting self-centered absolutely yeah and uh, i you know we were talking about this earlier you know oftentimes movies and they have to do this i guess to make it interesting that you, know, you have the evil character that's got the best lines he looks like a million bucks you know he mm-hmm. dresses well he's got the money and I think about like old Columbo episodes, the detective, the television detective. You know, it always took place in a, a wealthy place in Beverly Hills, or some wealthy thing. Right. You know, and that just kind of makes it interesting. You know, if it, if it's like a a place with a lot of chaos and and other kinds of struggle, it's like you, you know, I don't know. For some reason it kind of loses its interest. But, um, you know, we. You gotta you gotta dress it up because in of itself, you know, taking somebody's life or acting selfishly, I think, is not compelling. But it's like you dress it up; it kind of can be somewhat attractive or give the illusion. Right, and that's that's one of the philosophical elements that Aristotle talks about. So there are different types of logic. There's logical necessity, such as um, if you have a syllogism, um, all men are mortal. Socrates. Um, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's like logical necessity. But there's another type of logic called like logic of rhetoric or logic where you are merely inclining by fancy. And Aristotle talks about this in his Poetics. And there he says it's by just portraying action as good and desirable that we can convince others so in films you're not you're not making a case of logical necessity you're not saying a a is equal to b b is equal to c 
therefore a is equal to c. It's not something that has to be the case necessarily. Rather, you're introducing a logic of moving the heart. And you do that by showing characters finding their happiness or losing their happiness based upon their actions. And you show ultimately the beauty and the peace that results from living a good life or the misery that results from living a bad life. Now, the bad, now philosophy can become skewed, warped, and untrue if you start portraying, well, see, this person's doing evil actions, and now look how happy they are. Um, there's, a, there's a movie called Me Before You, and it's about a guy who ultimately ends up um, taking his life, and it's kind of portrayed as a, um, as a heroic thing, mm-hmm. and that's where um, you really see that they're, they're trying to warp the sense yeah. of, of of good and evil and it's really just by portraying the good and portraying the evil as as what they are rather than trying to confuse people and give them a false sense of good and evil by portraying it as something desirable yeah but isn't there even something real about portraying evil like in an attractive way because that's like what satan does to us right right it's kind of our experience right that you know, maybe people are drawn to steal because they can have money. And so you show them acquiring the money and that looks fun to us in some degree, you know, the nice car or whatever the house. Right. <laughs> and but yeah, you have to show an honest filmmaker, I think maybe a Catholic filmmaker would show yeah, the the lack of joy, peace and what it costs them. Right. So like the external things might be there. They might have all the fancy toys and bells and whistles. But at the end of the day, it's important to show that interiorly they're not, they're not at peace. They're not happy because that's true to life. No matter how much you try to tell yourself that living, living in vice is going to be fun and you know the way to go, it's really not the case. And that's where Aristotle and St. Thomas both are really in agreement because Aristotle talks about how we have a specific nature. And if we live in vice, we're working against our nature. We're working against what our reason tells us. And since reason, as Aristotle explains, is like our highest faculty of knowing, if we're not reasoning well, we're not really, we're not living well, because that's what we should be doing as human beings is reasoning well. And if we're not reasoning well, we're not living well, and vice is acting contrary to reason, because vice is doing things that, if you just take an honest look at it, ask people who have lived this way, you realize it's destructive to your nature. It's just going to leave you feeling empty and miserable and unsatisfied, and only by living virtuously, only by loving, truly can we find that happiness. So it's important to reflect that in the stories that we tell, and particularly in the films, yeah. that have those stories yeah i watched a bbc film on a true story about this great train robbery in the 60s and 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 it's it's really sad i mean everybody gets caught that was involved in it and i went on wikipedia and was reading about the true story and it was it was very it's just you know the, it tears up the families involved and you know, innocent people got hurt. And when you look at the the reality of it, it's really ugly and kind of scary and and very diminishing to the person. You know, it's not it's not like the person's growing into a big flourishing personality. You know? Right. It's like you get small and I always found that too. I mean watching some of the documentaries on like the mafia in this country and you know, oftentimes it seems to me, and even like the cartel stories in like Mexico, it's just, it's like some violent thugs, you know, right. that have achieved whatever power, but money, but it's really very uninteresting, you know, and it's, it's predictable, repetitive, and it's, it's ugly. Right. It's, ugly. it's like, we all know people can be evil. So where's the, um, where's the arc? Where's, where's the turning point? Where's the growth? And that's yeah. ultimately, I think what we all want as an audience, but there's, there's such an agenda to fight against Christ and the truth in the, in the media so that any voice of conscience often gets stamped out. And there's, there's a real, 
war against beauty, truth, and goodness. And that's why it's so important to make films to bring back this beauty, truth, and goodness. Because people, at the end of the day, they'll watch what entertainment's available. And it's important to be giving them options of good entertainment because ultimately those are the films that are really classics. You didn't know to take the movie Casablanca, for example. The ending it has is because of the production code, um, the famous ending where, you know, um, the main the main character Rick lets um, lets lets Ilsa go with Laszlo and escape, and he stays behind mm-hmm. to continue to continue the fight for the people in the war and you know it's because of the production code that it had that dramatic ending mm-hmm. rather than him just choosing what he wanted to do for himself yeah. so that's you know and that's what makes it so memorable and lasting whereas films that portray evil as somehow good they're not really going to be classics because it it's not in conformity with our nature as human beings yeah there's something to be said sometimes about like sometimes critics will pan something but then it's popular among people and i always feel like some sometimes that's at play mm-hmm. that you know you you very secular group of people out here godless whatever um you know our, you're just denying our common experience that we're moved by virtue right you guys see this as corny you guys see this as simplistic but you know, we want to see something where someone does the right thing and maybe at cost and sacrifice and things. And, uh, and just at the fact that there is a right thing and mm-hmm. there is a wrong thing. Right. You know, I always, I feel like in our relativistic culture, you know, we strip away that great drama of life. And, you know, some movies like wrestle with it. It's like they just, they don't even have like a moral code. They seem confused. Like in the presentation of their characters and everything, like, what does a heroic character do? You know, it's like if you don't believe in anything, there's no heroism, right? Know? And and uh, there's no sense of real drama of good versus evil. And let's talk about maybe some of the artistic aspects of film and what that entails. And uh, I mean, all these themes of like beauty and drawing people. I think to watch it. You know, it has to have some artistic value just in of itself. Right? Definitely, yeah. yes. So, and that's a tricky business, right? <laughs> so Aristotle talks about the importance of both delighting and instructing. So it's important to be entertaining to make a film that is going to that's going to really capture the interests of the audience and keep them on the edge of their seat and wanting to watch and invested with the characters and good storytelling. And at the same time, to to teach the audience something um, without them even realizing it, to just make the lesson, the the truth, part of the story in such a seamless way that's that's subtle, but really remains in the minds and hearts of the people watching to see the truth um, of what the characters are doing. You know, my favorite film is The Fellowship of the Ring, and always it always strikes me just to see. The sac- is that the first? The f- yeah, that is the first, the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I mean, all of them are great. But to see the, the heroism of, of the hobbits who are, you know, the smallest, the, um, the, who would seem to be the least great and powerful of all the creatures, but the sacrifice and humility and, and love, which is such a Christian understanding of true power, which is having trust and, and humility and uh, trust in God. To, to see that lived out and the, the amount of sacrifice they're willing to make for the sake of the rest of Middle Earth and to see all, all the very the human elements of, um, the, you know, the way that they interact with each other, their sense of humor and their ability to, to find hope in the midst of darkness and insurmountable odds. It's something that's so universal and ever relevant and ever inspiring. Yeah, like having to leave the Shire. Right. Having to go on Exodus, to leave the comfortable, to go out and proclaim the gospel. You right. Know, like Christian and, and, you know, I think God so often calls us out of our comfort, you know, to help people or extend ourselves. Or, so 
some tragedy happens in the family, you know, and you got to do things to care for people, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's such a powerful thing because they describe the shy shires, you know, they smoke their pipes and have their pints or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a nice place. You know, the thing that actually blows me away that I just love in the third one, you know, with the humble hobbits, you know, they work as a team, right? Sam and Frodo and you know, they need to be a team to get up the Mount Doom there, but but they fail. Right. That just, that, that always just, I can't get my head around it. You know, like why that is, that just gives me pause that he failed. And, you know, he's he wants to destroy Gollum along the way. Sam does, I guess. And right, Gandalf says he still might have a role to play. That mm-hmm. there's some mysterious providence of God that's guiding this thing and, right and that he can he can use evil you know we can never act cruelly or unjustly you know and god works this out and that you know Gollum bites the ring finger off and the ring winds up falling into mount because he fails to throw it the humble hobbit himself fails to throw it into the lava right <laughs> and it's such a great image of christianity you know that's very true you know it's 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 very much portraying the aspect of divine grace, but in a way that is not preachy at all. It's not it's not in your face. It's very it's very subtle and woven into the story. But there you can see that there there's a force working working for good even in ways that you don't expect. You, you know you see right when you think that all is lost that Gollum is actually an instrument of grace and of bringing, bringing to completion this, this heroic journey that Frodo and Sam couldn't do on their own. Yeah. And, you know, you definitely can see this is why it's important to have Catholic artists too, because they have the truth, they have the correct philosophy, and it just pervades all their storytelling. And Tolkien himself will say that Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Yeah. And... That's why it's so important for young Catholic artists and Catholic artists in general to make these types of, of films and works of art that lead people to their ultimate joy, to their ultimate fulfillment and beatitude. And that can only happen by having a, a, an understanding of what makes us happy. That's the only way we can lead others to understand happiness and to find that joy and love and peace in their life. Yeah, and I love that subtlety you, know, you mentioned woven throughout. And it, cause there's something, it's almost like when we have to connect the dots ourselves and then like we're given like some room to kind of, you know, that it clicks in us. Right. Why, that, that seemed like that's key to moving, right. moving us. It's like not just when I'm told, you know, if somebody dryly tells me this, mm-hmm. like that doesn't really move me. But if I'm kind of with it and then I get there myself, right? that is so powerful in storytelling. That's, that's very true. I heard a, um, a screenwriter once say, don't give the audience four, give them two plus two. <laughs> that's good. We, we want to work. We kind of want to work for, our, for the answer ourselves and internalize what's being said it's learning without being taught necessarily. It's it's seeing lived experience, a metaphor for life unfold before us on the screen or on the page of a story. And it's it's really about, like you're saying, connecting the dots ourselves because it's in that way it's we're making it our own and we don't feel like someone's talking down to us, telling us this is the way it has to be. It's recognizing an innate truth that we all have as human beings that we share by our very nature. And when we see it in someone else, we see it reflected in our own lives. And then we come to a realization of this is how I should live. I should, I should help out my neighbor. I should be willing to give, give a kind listening ear to someone who's going through a rough time and realize the impact that it may have in their life. A beautiful example of that is it's a wonderful life. Just seeing the, the George Bailey and his, his whole realization of the dignity of every human life the importance how we touch others lives how 
all of his town would have been much more of a mess if it weren't for the, the simple actions that he took to keep the community together, to give away his money, to give people housing and all the countless small things that he did in order to help his, his friends out. Yeah, that he was, uh, he was fighting the twisted, frustrated old man. Right. <laughs> Mr. Potter. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I love that theme that it, yeah, it connects with something in our experience that, um, like we see the movie and it's, it, it connects something to our, what we've experienced in life and it's so, it's so powerful. Um, I saw, I was watching this thing one time that it was, these two characters were trying to decide what to do and then this other character comes in and is telling us something, some experience he just had and 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 it became a metaphor for what they needed to do this other character and i i, I just i thought i was just kind of blown away because it was like some kind of sitcom or some kind of comedy but man when it's done well and it kind of crystallizes in you like like hey this is the right thing or this is the wrong thing to do that's so powerful you know that's right. It's like when you convict, the character reaches this conviction point. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that struggle. I guess we all know that struggle to do the right thing and to have courage. And Lord of the Rings, right? He gives that great speech. You know, there may come a day when the courage of men may fail. You know, right. Not this day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love speeches and movies and, and like the, the importance of dialogue. You know, we, and on the show, you, you talked about like these different aspects of that film has within it. You know, that we could say like a, a literature aspect of the storytelling, the dialogue, you know, the script of it, and you know, the beautiful maybe musical score adds so much. Um, even an aspect of painting, if you think of a scene, right? Right. How, what do you put in the scene of this right. film? What objects are there, and what's the uh, you know some, and you know, you know, like well, just some other things like just the, the dramatic ability, the acting ability of the characters, you know, there, and and then editing it all down, and what do you keep, what do you cut loose, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, all that stuff, and it, it seems like you can fail in different ways, but if you nail a, a few of them, you got a great film, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you hit them all, that's great, you right. know, but. It's, it's, I guess I was, when I was talking to you earlier, I guess I was struck by just how powerful maybe one aspect of that is. Yes. I mean, every, every part of it is important, but the most important is always the story because that's, yeah. that's the living, the breathing core of the whole, of the whole project. Right. And everything else supports it. So the, the actors that, br that bring the characters to life supporting the story, the editing supports the story, the cinematography, the painterly aspect of it supports what am I trying to convey in this scene with the shots. The, the music is also supporting the story. So the story is really the, the core that holds the whole thing together. And all of the other elements are there acting sort of like... Um, support pillars and buttresses to to make that project as as good as it could be so you know it might not be quite as sturdy if you're missing a pillar but it still might stand you know yeah <laughs> so it's kind of how films are yeah and you know i've i've been kind of mesmerized too sometimes when a movie just has heart right you know i don't even know how you define that quality maybe oftentimes it seems like in coming of age films Sometimes when it just has a heart, and maybe it's that what you're, maybe the thing is, it's like it's connecting with something in you when you were maybe at that time of your life. And, you know, I used to think, you know, people would be nostalgic about something that they happened in their life. And even myself, you know, look at it and say, well, you know, that, that was just a thing or just some event that happened. It wasn't like this hugely great thing in and of mm -hmm. itself. But the fact was, is that it moved me. Maybe it was like this character in a show I watched as a kid. Mm -hmm. And you know, I look at it today and say, well, I was like a simplistic hero, one-dimensional, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever. But as a kid, maybe it's, it made you want to do good. 
Right. Maybe it wanted you to do the right thing. And that's a big thing, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I think that, that story and stuff is so important and inspiring. But, yeah, and, and why it touches us in ways, it's kind of interesting. But what, um, like in editing, I'm kind of fascinated by this. I remember hearing an interview with the, this lady that worked with Steven Spielberg on Jaws. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. I haven't seen Jaws in particular, but I do yeah. really love Steven Spielberg. He's yeah. one, one of my favorite directors. Well, there's this, this lady that was a, edited a lot of his stuff, and I guess they worked together on it. But I, I remember I thought it was she was so smart what she said about like the shark, you know, Spielberg built this mechanical shark. He wanted to show it off and use it all the time and everything. And, he, mm -hmm. and she encouraged him to not like overuse it. Right. To keep some mystery to it. That's true. And it's like our imagination connects the dots to make yes. this thing even scarier than what it right. is. Right. <laughs> right. So that takes careful editing, right? That what do you cut? What do you keep? Right. It's true. How do you approach that? Editing in particular. Yeah. To keep only as much as is necessary for the story. So anything that is not strictly necessary or helping in some way, get rid of it. It's We call it um, in the film world, trimming the fat. Like yeah. um, anything unnecessary, cut it out. And in, in editing, it's, it's important to have the right pacing for the the type of scene that you're doing so you know if it's an action scene maybe a lot of quicker cuts it's really like a mosaic of arrangement because you have all these different clips and depending on what how you filmed it what clips are available to use and, and the type of scene getting the rhythm of the different shots going how long to hold it how how much that you show and how the arrangement of those particular clips it can really drastically change the whole feel of the film so you have to have a strong sense of what you're going for from the start to the finish yeah and it, you know i know I, I heard like a comedy filmmaker and this guy in the interview you know he, in many ways he sounded arrogant but i, I thought he showed some humility that i forgot what they call it but they would you know before they released the film they showed like test audiences they would show okay. scenes and say and what worked, what, what did they find funny? And they would cut stuff that wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. to because I th what he was saying was that, you know, we become unobjective, you know. We lose our objectivity if it's our own work. It's true. And you're sitting there batting it around with your friend. You guys are laughing your head off about it. You show it to a group of people, they don't get it. As right. Well, right. And I, I thought that showed a, a humility and maybe too, he just wanted to make money, and he knew he had to do this to make money. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was a, I thought that was a powerful lesson. I mean, I, I say this because it's like in preaching too. You know, you feel like um, sometimes you think something's great and it doesn't connect with people or whatever, and it doesn't work. But you know, to to have that humility, I guess, to take advice, to see what others think, have other, right. what other people look at it. Yeah, and it's it's very true that it's important to get someone who's not as closely involved with your film at a certain point to take a look at it because when you're part of it you, you like you said you might be the only one that gets it or finds it funny and for the best of the project you need someone else who kind of can take a step back and tell you what what's really working or not and a lot of times it gets hard in the editing room because you got to let stuff go that you you and the people that worked on it are the only ones who knew how much work it took to make or what it involved, or just have a personal attachment to it, but it gets back to the whole aspect of beauty. Maybe it, maybe the wholeness or the harmony would suffer because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the story ultimately, or it's unnecessary and it would be worth getting rid of, just getting rid, moving it out of the film completely. So that's where you have to be able to cut your losses and be like, well, this will help the film be better, even though I know that I'm losing a scene that I didn't want to let go. Yeah, and like, how do you be faithful to the original inspiration? Right. You know, that you don't want to be arrogant or something, but to be true to yourself and your own vision. And I think, too, maybe what 
One, maybe a, a gift God has given you, or maybe a charism, or maybe an inspiration that he wants this, and not to let go of that, you know, in the film that people, uh, that, that question of like, I remember playing golf with somebody once, <laughs> and I never, I never played much golf at all, but it, the guy, the guy was saying, well, just, just to dance the ball, or just think about, just, you know, some people get out there, they try to knock it out of the park, right, and pick up mm-hmm. this big clump of dirt or something. <laughs> But just think of it as I'm just a dancing the ball, you know. Like to think of maybe shots, scenes, dialogues that advance it. Right. You know, some might be powerful, intense, emotional, and others might be seemingly kind of gentle. Or right. But it, yet it does something. It does move it forward. Right. I would think that would be hard to know. <laughs> but yes. So if like if it's if it's not advancing the story, or if it's not advancing. It's not advancing the plot or conveying some sort of emotional journey or some specific element that's really essential to the telling of the story or the wholeness of the film, then it's usually a good idea to cut it out. Yeah. I like shots. I, the videography, photography, cinematography. You talked about the chapel scene in your movie. Yes. Tell us about that. So it was really great filming in there. That's so that's the old chapel. They're actually building a new chapel at Christendom. It'll be big. Um, but that so we were filming in there, and I really wanted to film on a sunny day towards sunset because I knew the sun would be lower, and would be shining in this golden light. And I really wanted to convey with that color the the kind of heavenly beauty of of experiences that we can all relate to so we all have moments in our life where whether it's nature or when we hear a nice song or whatever it is that we we someone gives us a smile that moves us these moments of kind of contemplative of contemplative beauty where our hearts really at peace and, and joyful i wanted to convey that sense that sense of true joy when the main character steps in and he's having a rough day and he just hears this girl singing this this beautiful uh, Latin song, a part of the the Ave Maria by Archidelt. And the lighting there is really meant to serve that. And even the camera orbit at the beginning, kind of going from the side to the front, is supposed to kind of show that the 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 moving nature of the music. And then you also, in that same shot, you convey the emotion. And also, as I go from the side to the front, convey that the main character is walking in the background. So it kind of serves a, a double purpose. And then just his his kind of triumphant feeling at the end. You see his expression and you see the light coming in. It's almost like there's a kind of halo glow. So lighting is a very important element in the cinematography, the camera movement where I place the camera. It's all important and relevant to telling the story. Yeah, and I, you know, he's like, he, the guy walks in, hears, sees the scene, and hears the beautiful voice, sees the beautiful young woman, and and he's like struck. Right. right. It's like, <laughs> it's that, you know, it's like the love, the experience, I guess, and uh, attraction. And Definitely, yes. Yeah, it had like those great elements in it that I thought too, like with femininity too, and and like you have like you know a religious woman that's has this reverence and doing something beautiful. It's just like it just highlights some of the gifts of the feminine nature. Well, that's no, that's very true, and I definitely wanted to convey how her her love, kindness, and just her femininity really is something that would draw him out of out of his more self-focused world into a world of of grace and beauty and it would open up an ability for him to really converse more with God and to see God's goodness and be a doorway for him into growing in in grace and a self-sacrificial nature and that's really kind of the first the first scene where we see the other side of him and and see him coming out of himself a bit and getting away from just, I got to do my thing, I got to get ahead. Yeah. It reminds me of what John Paul II talked about, like the, I forgot his words, but basically like the sexual attraction is like this 
this impulse that come out of ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, where you might, and I never thought of it that way because it could be so easily turned into, you know, selfish loss. Right. But, you know, if it's not lust and just, you know, like a sexual attraction that's not distorted, yeah, it's, it, it speaks of our nature that we, as he would always say in Vatican II, said, you know, that we find ourselves in a sincere giving of ourselves. It's very true. Yeah. Because there, there's that definitely that sense of, of complementarity, that that sense of finding our own right, like what you're saying, that finding our own identity through communion with another, and the male female dynamic is such a powerful witness of that, and according to God's design from the very beginning. Yeah, and again, on the camera movement in that scene. Describe that again. It was moving down the aisle of the church, or so at the very beginning, there was there was one orbiting shot. So where I started off as she's singing from the side, uh-huh. and then moving to the front. So orbiting to the front, okay. and that both conveys the kind of the the movement of of music, sort of like you can imagine raising raising our voice to God in heaven. That kind of inner movement of the heart. And it also conveys, it, it also allows the audience to see just um, the main character coming in the back because you go from the side to the front. So it kind of is a reveal of he's coming in the back as she's singing and having this realization. Yeah. And you talk about like how the high camera angle maybe gives like a God perspective. Or... Yes. So the, the high camera angle can can either convey a God perspective showing the kind of seeming insignificance of the person in his landscape. Um, it can show that, you know, they're weak or vulnerable, or it can show that God's watching down on them. And then low shots typically show a character in a, in a position of strength. They look powerful. They're looming larger than life. So that's why um, camera placement is, is very important. If something is large in the frame, in the foreground, it can show that that object is is very important. Alfred Hitchcock talks about this: the size of something in the frame designates its importance. So, in in, in a movie um, called The King's Speech, where you have uh, where you have the king preparing to give this speech to the whole country about the start of World War II, you know, the English king, you really see how massive the microphone is, and it's like looming large in front of him, and it's like it shows from his perspective how how intimidating it is because he has a speech impediment right it shows how intimidating you know being in front of the microphone is and how kind of much that's controlling his life so there there are many different elements of of cinematography and and storytelling that really portray the 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 message of the story and portray the emotion of that scene i wonder too sometimes if the higher angle too might kind of show be kind of like a more objective feel to it. It's not like a close-up where it's very filled with maybe emotion of expression. Right. That's true. Yeah, because I noticed that in a, I went to a wedding, like a, was years ago, I went to like a 50th wedding anniversary and they, they just were playing, like they had projected, they had scanned in, I guess, or something, these family photos. And I was just showing the life of this elderly couple and, and it just struck me as so beautiful. They were playing like kind of 70s love songs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of thinking, oh boy. But then it, I just, it just moved me so much because it's like when you step back and look at the reality, like when you're in it, it's the difficulty maybe of trying to find work, you know, and provide for the family and the house is too small and the car, nothing has air conditioning, you know, you're in the south. It's like, but you take a step back and look at it, you see the home. Right. You see the car that we did these trips in, you know, we went here and there and, and you know, it's like, it's just funny to me because I think we often lose that kind of perspective on our life that in a sense, you know, God sees us from a distance and he sees the big picture. He sees us from within as well, but it's like, I think we lose sight of the big picture of maybe the greatness of fidelity of sacrifice, you know, that when you step back and look at it, you know, that what was done. Right. Yeah. The, the, the camera definitely too shows those, those different elements of either more objective or more subjective perspective. Cause when you're putting the camera in a scene, 
usually you're, you're conveying one character's point of view in some way or another, or you're just showing the scene more objectively from afar. You're taking it in as an audience without really feeling like you're experiencing it from one of the character's perspectives. So that's another element that definitely comes into play in camera placement and movement. What about like the pushing in like to the face of a character? Right. So that conveys a sense of drama. It heightens the intensity. It, it could either be, for example, a character's having a realization or it could be for a really dramatic, important statement. It's showing that this what this character is saying is, is meaningful and important. So we're moving in towards them physically with the camera. Um, or it could be, it could be a, a kind of slow, dawning understanding of something new. But it, it's always there to heighten whatever the emotion is. Same thing with um, pulling back. If you're, if you're moving the camera away, it usually signals some sort of defeat or possibly just revealing something new, some new information within the scene that you couldn't see from being closer. I wonder too, sometimes I find it so effective in a you know, movie or something when they get closer and it's not even, I know this actor is just showing so much emotion in their face, whatever, but maybe it's too, it's like forcing us just to focus and think about this. What is this character thinking about? How does this impact him? Mm-hmm. And it kind of stirs something when you get connected to him, you know, that is, I guess it does kind of make it personal, right? Guess, Definitely. Because yeah. when you, you, you can feel, there's a difference between zooming in, which is tell the lens is zooming in from afar, but when you're actually tracking in on a dolly or a slider is what they call the, um, the camera equipment you're actually moving physically closer with the camera towards the character and you can feel that kind of intimacy as you're right there in that space right in front of what the the, you know the actual actor and um, hearing what they're having to say yeah and the last one we'll talk about maybe is uh, how about music that doesn't mean anything is it (laughs) (laughs) music it's where do where to begin with that um, it's, it's such a immensely powerful aspect and it's, it's interesting how music can convey the subtext. So you have, you know, like di- in dialogue, you have the text, like the actual words, the, the, what the words are actually, the, the meaning of the words themselves and the sentence of what a character says, but then you have the subtext and the subtext is what the character means on a deeper level when he says something. So people don't typically say exactly what they're feeling and the subtext is what's being implied, the deeper shades of meaning in a, in a statement, what's really going on under the surface. And with music, the character might not be saying anything, but you can get a sense of what's really happening, the, the more complete truth of the situation by what's happening in the soundtrack. You listen to the music and you're like, okay, this character might be saying something nice, but the music's sinister, what's, what's really gonna happen? Or the, the music um, goes from being really sad to all of a sudden you start to hear warm, warmer sounds that are more vibrant and happy and you know that some good news is coming or whatever it may be, Alfred Hitchcock described that music says the things that words can't. And that's very true in that sometimes a very powerful scene in a film, there, there might be no dialogue, you just, hear the soundtrack and it's expressing the spiritual heart of what's happening at that moment without necessarily being expressed in words and it really uh, takes the film to a whole nother level the just having music to accompany it and convey a, a really deep reality because that's introducing a whole other art form and putting it in the service of um, a motion picture it's really something quite unique so music says, how did you say it? Yeah, music, music says the things that words can't. Yeah. And what do you think is so powerful about film? Because we've, we've, we say this because, you know, we all acknowledge we don't read enough. We don't read the classics enough. <laughs> and we're illiterate practically, even if we can read now because mm-hmm. we're drunk on Google and everything else. And uh, But... I think in all that, sometimes though we just dismiss film like, as a true art. But oh yeah, so 
I'm a 100% ardent supporter is of film as an art form. And I think it is very much and can be a high art form because it incorporates so many other art forms. It, it incorporates music, it incorporates story, drama, painting, basically anything that you could think of in some way. I'm sure that you could find a way to incorporate it into a film. It's really quite amazing editing, which is a new type of art form of cutting and mixing stuff together that arose after the birth of cinema as a as a new phenomenon. So there's so much that you can do with it, and it's so powerful and immersive in a way, and immediate in a way that, that no other art form before it quite, quite achieved. And that's why the, the, you know, the pontiffs, they talk about how important it is to have good films because they're they're so they so directly just kind of bypass bypass reason in a sense and get right to the to the heart and the emotions and and it's like you you just subjectively experience the film and you don't have to do a lot of work you're just kind of taking it all in it's like being somewhat in a dream that you feel like you're right there with the characters as it's happening and you don't really you don't have to work for it in the way that you do in a book and a lot of people would probably say that um that you know maybe books are books are better to read because there's more of an active engagement with it but i think that film since it combines so many different aspects of art so many different types uh, so many different art forms and the fact that it is kind of passive i think that that done well it can be very beautiful and um very powerful and very lofty in its own regard and it's the fact that in film you're you're just you're taking it in it's it, it's all there handed to you in such a powerful you know punchy package i think that it's that's really what draws me to it is the amount the amount of power it can have to really move move a person and in in um in books it's a, it's a different type of thing the, i think you need both they they complement each other books and and films and i think if if you really want to be a great filmmaker you you should read really the great books and if you if you um, want to have a new perspective on books, I'd even say watching a film can help you to see a book in a new light. So they really do, I would say, complement each other, and they're each they're each needed. And it's it's really um it's really neat to have this new type of art form, which is filmmaking. And they give they make they can make such a lasting impression on us. Definitely. Like some stuff I'll watch and it's like I have no recollection barely of seeing the film, but other things just get into me, you right? Know? And it's like, and it leaves me with an impression of maybe a particular country or an event, you know, a historical event, and so it's so formative in our culture today, you know. Definitely, and that's like, it's so often abused, which is the tragedy of it because it has so much potential for good. And it's it's such a just tremendous vehicle of of showing truth and beauty in the human experience and providing just a good leisurely activity, but it's just been completely hijacked so often that a lot of people can just dismiss it entirely. But it's important to realize that the 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 potential on the flip side for for great art is very much there. Yeah. John Paul, thank you so much for coming, uh, being on the show and talking with us. Thank you, Father Mark. Mm -hmm.